0: Pentecostal people of diversity, justice, and peace. On the day of Pentecost, through the power of the Holy Spirit, walls of division began to come down between people. The beauty of the church is that it embodies unity, not in uniformity, but in the magnificence of God's created diversity. Although God's people belong to different nations, ethnicities, languages, economic classes, education levels, and generations, we are all called to work for unity in all the richness of diversity. In the church, this gets lived out in many different ways. We celebrate, encourage, and prepare both women and men for the ministry and leadership within the church. We work at being good citizens where God has planted us without becoming shaped by the idolatries of nationalism. We intentionally work to include people who make our community more reflective of God's creative diversity. And we practice hospitality and justice for those often marginalized and oppressed by various systems of power. Although the kingdom is not yet here, work as best we can to make peace in the world we are committed to not just being a church containing multiple generations but we desire to be an intergenerational community learning from one another and being formed by one another
1: this morning, you. I out of john the 12th chapter In the epistle text this morning from Galatians, the third chapter, John chapter 12, I want to, the screen's going to jump in at verse 20, but let me begin at verse 19. Therefore, the Pharisees said to each other, see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world is following him. Some Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and made a request, sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus replied, the time has come for the human one to be glorified. I assure you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. Whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever I am, there my servant will be also. My father will honor whoever serves me. Now I'm deeply troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this time. No, for this is the reason I have come to this time. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard and said, it's thunder. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus replied, this voice wasn't for my benefit, but for yours. For now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler will be thrown out when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. In Galatians, the third chapter, just verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For you are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you you are Christ's, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Oh, it is so good to see you this morning. I can't tell you how good it is to be with you and to see you. I am so sorry for having missed the last three weeks. Um, I didn't really mean to. Uh, three weeks ago, um, I meant to be here, but Deb and I got COVID. And so it was probably best that we stay home for a few days. Um, and then two weeks ago, I, was, I meant to be here too, um, but I, I went to go speak at Mount Vernon Nazarene University uh, on Monday and Tuesday and do some things there. And originally my flight was supposed to leave at 2.30 in the afternoon on Sunday so I could be here and then head to the airport and go to Ohio. But about five, six days ahead of time, I got a notice from American Airlines saying, your flight has been canceled. It now leaves at 10 a.m. And so thankfully, Pastor Brent has a couple of good things to say about worship. And so I was able to let him take that. And then last week, thanks for your prayers for Deb and for our family and the loss of her dad. So last Sunday, Deb the kids and I, the four of us, five of us flew to Missouri to join Deb with her family, and then she stayed for a couple of extra days. And so Sunday, uh, the kids and I flew back and uh, because I had cashed in all my United miles to get us there and back, uh, the only way to get home was to go from Springfield, Missouri to Chicago and spend seven hours in the Chicago O'Hare Airport before coming back to Boise. And so the kids and I uh, tried to watch as much of the Super Bowl as we could on our laptops. Um, but there was this great moment last week while we were in the O'Hare Airport, we, the five of us were hungry and so we went into uh, the Chili's there and we were sitting there at a table together and watching the Olympics and, and around us were uh, some other large groups. There was one group of folks who were all speaking Spanish and there was another group of people who were speaking quite loudly a a Slavic language. I think it was Norwegian, um, but they were having a great time. And then there was another table near us that was speaking Arabic. And my, my daughter, Sophie looks at me and she goes, dad, can you hear all those languages? I said, yeah, she goes, I miss that. I said, yeah, that was beautiful. Now, I I love that she felt that way. Um, And I know that we are uh, folks and especially my kids shaped uh, because of a decade in Southern California. But in Pasadena first, uh, when I was there, there are several things that I I miss about LA. Um, The weather, especially in February. Um, I miss the Dodgers and Hollywood Bowl and my wife really misses the beach. But but one of the things I, I do miss about Pasadena first was was when God really helped us and when things were going really well, there were several years there where we were really embodying and it was challenging, but we were embodying what it meant to be one church, but a church that spoke a bunch of different languages. Um, We had a couple of large English speaking services, but we had a Spanish speaking service and a Cantonese and a Mandarin and a Korean and a French and for time in Arabic and a, a wonderful Armenian congregation. Many of those folks would come to the English-speaking congregation and go to their uh, native-speaking congregation. Some were first-generation immigrants who would go to that language uh, service, but their children would come to the youth and children ministries in English, like it was just, and really working at being one church and doing all that kind of stuff. And and, and I have to say, I I loved that, was shaped by it. And a lot of my interest even in, I think, the theme of exile in the Scripture came from being part of those communities and and observing and participating in their life. And in particular, I've shared this with you. I learned so much from some of my Armenian brothers and sisters in those days. For the Armenian folks um, you may know are really shaped by an attempted genocide of the Armenians about 1915. And that was a time where a number of people immigrated then to the US and a lot of them came to places like Pasadena and Glendale, California. Where there are significant Armenian communities still. But one of the things that was so interesting in observing their life was how they were working at trying to keep this particular way of life alive and the particular culturalization of being Armenian alive while now being second, third, and even fourth generations of living in the sort of genericizing force that is America. And it was fascinating to watch them try desperately to keep a culture that could not be defeated by violence, not be defeated by assimilation. And so it was important for them. Uh, many of the folks in those congregations had two names. They had their given name in that language, which was too hard for English speakers oftentimes to pronounce, and so they would take on names like Debbie, right, um, Esther, Eunice, right, names that we could pronounce. Um, But it also survived in food, and so it was really important, and man, I I do miss that part too. Um, We became huge fans of hummus uh, during our years in Pasadena. Uh, In food and in various customs, Uh, it seemed like almost every wedding that I performed as a minister in those, those years, I had to learn some cultural ceremony to be part of that wedding ceremony. It survived in particular ways of living faith, but in particular, an attempt to save language. So this morning, I, I want to take a journey with you, and I, I have a lot to say. I haven't been here for three weeks, and I'm going to talk fast. And, I'm gonna, and I today want to preach the whole Bible at some level, and so hang with me. But most importantly, I kind of want to throw you in the deep end of the, of the pool for just a little bit theologically and biblically. So if we think about the first 11 chapters of the Bible, which in some ways are really hard for us to interpret, Genesis one through eleven is really what I would call the, the prehistory history, and there's lots of narratives there. But there are three primary stories that shape Genesis one through eleven: creation and the fall of humankind, the flood story of Noah, and the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter eleven. Now, scholars wrestle with where did these stories come from. We're pretty sure there weren't a whole lot of first-hand witnesses to those events. And so how do these stories emerge? How do they come about? What cultural moment do these stories kind of arise out of for Jewish life? And there are a number of scholars, again, it's not that important, but I do think it's fascinating that a number of scholars would argue that this literature of Genesis 1 through 11, probably is stories that have been passed down for generations, but it came to us in the form that it came to us probably in the 6th or 5th centuries B.C., in the time when Judah is being taken captive into Babylon. And as they're being taken into captivity, much like my Armenian friends, the question is, how do we not lose our identity? How do we not wake up one day and now we're just the people of, we used to be the people of God living in Babylon, but now we're just Babylonians, right? And so these stories become important ways to address how we as the particular people of God think about creation and some other things. And that's why I've said to you before, one of the ways scholars sometimes read these stories is to compare them to like Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian creation stories. And so a few weeks ago, I said to you, if we take ancient creation stories, we can probably lump them into two categories, categories that talk about the gods created us to be their slaves or the gods created us to be warriors. But we have a creation story that says, no, we were created in the image of God to be partners with God in the flourishing of this creation that he loves so deeply. Did you, are you with me, right? Are you there? All right. Um, And likewise, scholars will sometimes read the, the Noah story in the light of other flood narratives. But the Tower of Babel is really problematic and fascinating because of this. The Hebrew word that we translate Babel is the exact same word we translate Babylon. And so there are many scholars who would argue that The story is more than just kind of an ancient story about a culture that tried to build a tower to the heavens and that was really futile. But perhaps it's also a way of critiquing life in Babylon. That when you live in Babylon, here's the problem. People are trying to squeeze you into the cultural mode of Babylon. And they're trying to get you to participate in Babylonian economy. And they're trying to teach you Babylonian language. And they're trying to... Get you to pledge your allegiance, if you will, to Babylon. And so that the critique of the story is this that, that it's also a story about how we live in an empire, if we're Jewish people living in the sixth century, that we are being squeezed into this mold. And, and the problem is the empire is trying to find unity, but it's trying to find unity this way in uniformity if we can all be the same, wouldn't life be sweet? We would think alike and work alike. Think of what we could accomplish. Maybe we could build a tower to the heavens. Only that's sort of futile and arrogant. Now, you can take that or leave that. But I would say a later book, the book of Daniel, really narrates it this way. Now, as the people lived in Babylon, Babylon tried to squeeze them into its mold. For example, the four main characters in the story of Daniel are Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But immediately, Babylon gives them new names, Belteshazzar, and then the names that you probably know from children's church, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, it's interesting to me that it's easier for us to remember their Babylonian names than their Hebrew names the whole story of Daniel is about how the king's trying to get them to sit at his table or bow down to his image or get Daniel to give up these practices that shape his life so importantly as God's people. So that language and culture is trying to squeeze them into the Babylonian mold. So back to the Tower of Babel, you still with me? So we go back to the Tower of Babel, then scholars, Jewish and Christian argue often that the judgment then that happens at Babel does... The diversification of languages, the separating of the nations, the emergence of multiple cultures is not actually then a punishment or judgment of anger on God's part, as much as it is, and this is the key if I've lost you so far, it is a judgment of grace. That much like in the creation story, God creates all sorts of creeping things that crawl along the ground and and God celebrates the fact that there's all these creatures in the sea, even the sea monsters of the deep, like in the same way that God is glorified in the multiplicity of creatures on earth and in the seas and flying in the skies above, so too the judgment of Babel is actually a judgment of grace in which God is now delighting in the fact that there are different skin tones and ethnicities and languages and surely food, there are tacos and pastas and pizzas and hot dogs. Like there's just all of this stuff and music, like there's all of this, right? Like the diversity of that is not a bad thing in the Jewish imagination, but is a good thing. And so they want to resist the genericizing forces of the empire. Did you get that? Thanks for swimming in the deep end. Now, the reason why that's important is because I think as the scripture progresses and the story progresses, a kind of imagination begins to develop in God's people. You could argue that early on, as they enter in the promised land, they're convinced that unity can only happen through uniformity. So when they come into the promised land, they just eliminate everybody. But about the sixth century, as they live in exile, the imagination begins to change. And in particular, a prophet that I think embodies that change in imagination is Isaiah. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah the 11th chapter, where Isaiah imagines a time when there is peace on a very divided and broken world. But his imagination is this, that the lion and the lamb will lay down together. The wolf and kid will live together. The the ox and the bear will graze together. They won't hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord, for the earth will be covered, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now you're not excited about that, but what's so powerful about that imagination is that we won't find unity on God's mountain because we all become wolves or we all get sheepy where we all become oxen. But the imagination is that lion and lamb and wolf and kid and bear and ox would share life together on God's holy mountain. Now the text that Ryan sort of read for us is Isaiah 60. Just had to get him there. Mostly read for us. The powerful part, the reason I wanted to hear Isaiah 60 this morning is because this is a text that likely comes after exile. And the people's imagination is this, that Jerusalem would become a light to the nations. And as Ryan emphasized, the light of the Lord would shine and come upon them. But the powerful imagination is that the nations, the ethnoi, the people of the world would not be destroyed by Jerusalem, but would come to Jerusalem. And here's the powerful line, the kings of the earth would come and bring their treasures and lay them before the king in Jerusalem. Now again, you're not very excited about this, was so awesome, it's a great picture. All these folks from all these different nations and languages would come like the, the Chili's in the O'Hare airport, they would come together. And there would be languages and multiplicity of music and dance and food and, and God would be glorified in this God honoring diversity that would enter into the holy city. The gospel text we read from John chapter 12, Jesus is talking about how he will be laid down and die in Jerusalem. The light of the Lord, ironically, coming through Messiah crucified. But the reason I picked it up at verse 19 is that that whole text is bookended by two statements. First of all, the Pharisees saying, ah, the whole world is coming to him. And the next verse, Greeks show up. And then the text ends with Jesus saying, and if I am lifted up, what will happen? I will draw all people unto myself. If we fast forward just a little bit to Acts chapter two, and so the statement for today is that to be a new creation people, we are a people of Pentecost. We're a Pentecostal people. Now, I know that word has some history. You may know that word has some history for us. I want to get it back. And I want to think about Pentecost and what I think is is, is really an important sense. I've said to you before, I, I really think I could be wrong about this. I don't think I am. But I think that the day of Pentecost, the primary miracle, we've oftentimes associated with our mouths. And I think that's the wrong organ. That here are these people, and Luke narrates, it's... It's this religious time in Jerusalem and people from all over the place, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, like again, the Chili's and the O'Hare airport, everybody's coming together. But the Spirit of God blows into the room, the Ruach of God, tongues of fire on each of them, and then they go out and Peter begins to preach. Now, what's interesting to me is Luke records that sermon so it seems as though Peter's not just saying la, 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 la. he doesn't know what he's saying, but he's actually speaking Parthian and the Parthian goes, hey, that's Parthian. The miracle seems to be that Peter is preaching in probably Aramaic. And as he's preaching, he is saying what he understands, but the Parthian, so the miracle is actually not so much of the tongue, I think, as it is the ear. He's hearing, the Parthian hears it in Parthian, the Mead hears it in Mead. the Eliamite hears it in Eliamite. And so the miracle of the day of Pentecost is this, that all those folk get baptized, take faith into Jesus Christ, and unity begins to happen at the day of Pentecost, and I would argue as a reversal of the Tower of Babel story. But unlike the Tower of Babel, where it is unity through uniformity, now in the advent of the Spirit, we have (laughs) unity, but the diversity is not erased. Are you excited about that? so awesome. Now, if we fast forward again to the book of Revelation, Pastor Carly, a few weeks ago, preached a beautiful sermon on Revelation chapter seven. She told us how there is a, a kind of pattern in Revelation where sometimes the revelator will hear one thing and then see something else. It's in chapters four and five. The revelator hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, but then he looks and he sees a lamb that has been slain. In chapter seven, it is such a great text. The revelator hears that there have been 144,000, which I know in kind of modern, that's, that's a decent Super Bowl crowd, right? But in the ancient world, 144,000, that's unthinkable. Like this huge group of people, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 have been redeemed. That's what he hears. But then he looks, oh, and this is such a great text. I got to read it. This is Revelation chapter seven. And then he saw a great multitude that no one could number for they were from every nation, tribe and people and language and they were standing before the lamb. And so the imagination again is not that it's just the Israelites or the Jews that have been redeemed. It is this massive group from every tribe and nation and language. And then you go to the next to the last chapter, chapter 21. And in it, the new Jerusalem descends. And again, just like Isaiah 60, the nations pour into the new Jerusalem. And here's what verses 24 through 26 say, and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Oh, this is so exciting. The picture of the new creation is not, we will all speak the same language, eat the same food, sing the same songs. Nazarene's finally learned to dance, (laughs) right? It's this picture of all of the cultures and ethnicities and nations of the world, all the parts that they have created that are God honoring, all of that gets carried into eternity. And there's a multiplicity of languages and foods and songs and expressions and dance and cultural artifacts that make it into that as the kings of the earth bring the glory of the nations into the new creation. Oh, what an amazing imagination. So here's the question. If that's the picture that shapes our imagination, how are we supposed to live right now? Now we get to the sermon. Galatians chapter three. (laughs) Paul says this. "Now, Now, 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 right now, now, in Christ Jesus, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean that there aren't Jewish folk and Gentile folk anymore, that there aren't men or women, that there aren't various social strata, economic classes, education standings. No, it means that the walls that have divided us for so long in those categories, Paul says, now, now, as a foretaste of that picture of the new Jerusalem, And the unity, not in uniformity, but in all the rich and beautiful diversity of God's creation, that unity is happening now in the spirit and in a people who embody what it means to be Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, all finding life together in Christ Jesus. This is why I have said, it's unimaginable, I think, for me, for Paul to say, this is so hard. Jews, just go have a Jewish church. Gentiles, go have a Gentile church. Because for Paul, the sign that the spirit has come is Pentecost and what did Pentecost do? It brought down the dividing walls so that now, now there is no longer Jew or Greek slave or male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And we have to embody that. Now, I have to say, this is one of the great struggles for me in ministry I took a church growth class when I was a seminary student and there is a principle of church growth that's called the homogeneous principle. And I struggle with it. The principle essentially says this, all of us feel most comfortable when we're with people who are like us. People who kind of look like us, think like us, look like us, sing like us, don't dance like us. We're just more comfortable when we're with people like that. And so the smartest thing, honestly, the smartest thing we could do as college church is figure out kind of who's here today, and are those people out in the community, and for lack of a better term, market ourselves to those folks, because they're much more likely to come here because we're like them. And the reason I hate the principle is because it works. And so we end up with churches made up oftentimes of one generation or another, churches often made up of one race or another. Church is often made up of one economic class or education standing or another. The challenge if you're listening well is I don't know, I don't know if you need the spirit of God to build that. What Paul pictures, what the revelator pictures, what Acts pictures is something only the spirit of God can do. And so we are invited to be that kind of people. And, and this morning, if, if you have that little notebook, I, I made some suggestions about, about some of the implications for us. Now let me say in that, if I weren't a Nazarene, if you hadn't already raised me and messed me up, I might convert because I do like our doctrine of holiness. I love our concern for the poor. I like that, we're, that we want to do education, especially for those who often get left out of it. But one of the things I love most about us between you and me, and I think it, we didn't do it so much in, intentionally as accidentally, but we've lived with it and now we've embraced it. And as we are, we're really the, one of the only Protestant denominations and we're actually the largest Protestant denomination that has an international structure. It's like the six leaders of the church in Nazarene come from different cultures and nations. When we try to gather together as the church in major assemblies. We got to invite all sorts of translators to come. And and let me say, as somebody who has had to lead a few uh, commissions and councils across the years, there have been times when I have been locked in a basement in Lenexa, Kansas, at our denominational headquarters, where I've thought, we should just be a North American church. This would be a lot easier. But I'm so grateful for what it means to have to work in the spirit to find unity across nations and boundaries and races and languages oh there's just something so beautiful when we're together that reflects the body of Christ and so let me close I I Um, I wrote a little book a few years ago on Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the churches. And and I wrote a letter for a couple of reasons. I find the letters interesting. Five of the seven are negative. But each of them is addressed to the angel of each particular church, Ephesus, Laodicea, etc. And so I, I was wrestling with some friends about the question, why are these letters addressed to the angel of the church? Now, I really could be wrong, but I did get a book deal out of it. Um, I kind of argued that the angel of the church is likely in the same way that you and I as individuals are more than the sum of our parts, that these churches are more than the sum of their parts. And so when the revelator, Christ through the revelator is addressing this church and the angel of the church, they're saying, hey, listen, this is kind of part of the spirit of who you are. When I first did the series, I I preached the first seven letters and then the eighth week, I preached a letter to the angel of Richardson, Texas. That's why I had to move to Pasadena. Uh, There's no question, Richardson had its own kind of angel. And by the way, doing ministry in a place like Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex, it has its own kind of spiritual nature that challenges, sometimes blesses the church, but also becomes a challenge to the church. There were some things about pastoring in LA and especially about the long history of Pasadena First. It had its own angel. Much of that was good. Much of that was problematic. But it meant trying to name, what does it mean to do ministry here? So I mentioned some intentionalities. We, we are a people committed to the leadership of women and we will, we will do that intentionally. We are, We are a people who who are committed to hearing the voices of those who are oftentimes not not heard. We're gonna be a people. We are a people committed to justice. Just even saying that may get me on some negative web pages tomorrow or some secret Facebook groups. Because I know that justice is kind of a co-opted word, but just for fun, I did a search this week The word justice occurs 220 times in the common English Bible. And so if we can't talk about justice, we basically have just pulled (laughs) all these pages out of the scripture. I don't know how to do the faith we're called to without talking about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Now here's the part I wanna be careful about, and I'm glad that the the clock died in the back. I know we've only lived here seven years, which means we have 40 to go till we're actually considered family. But, um, <laughs> but there's an angel of the church of College Church. And much of that is good. I think as a church, we struggle with the fact we have college in our name. And there, you know, you throw a ball in here, you hit a doctor who can't help so- somebody on the head, right? Like there's just a lot of educated people in this room. This is the kind of church that would invite a doctor who can't help them to help them. I love that about who we are. In fact, I feel like I was called here in large part because you are that kind of people. You're so mature and thoughtful. But I also know that can become a boundary at times for folk. And so how do we make sure that isn't a boundary? I love how Nazarene we are here, because I am. But I also know the history that comes from being part of the university and and being such an important community within the denominational history. I know also we have to be aware of the ways that can become a boundary for us at times. But can I say, there's so much I love about living in Idaho. This is an incredibly beautiful place to live. And I love the sort of salt of the earthiness of so many folks. It's fun to live around agrarian folks who've been shaped by the seasons of the year. By the way, one of the angels of Southern California is it's nice all the time, and so you work all the time. At least here it gets cold enough, you have to live inside for a little while. But I love so much of that. But I do think this message is important for us and that intentionality is important for us because the angel of Idaho does not help us here. For this is an incredible, homogenous place to live. Just as an illustration, for fun, I pulled up pictures of all 105 legislators for Idaho. 102 of them are white. We have one African-American and two Asian-American women legislators. We have... um, We have conversations in community spaces like school board meetings that are oftentimes shaped by a kind of homogeneity and a desire for that to remain. Sometimes it shows up in pretty ugly ways. I don't know that I've ever lived anywhere where I've seen the Confederate flag more than here. And I don't remember all my history, but I'm pretty sure we're A little far west or north for that to be part of trying to maintain some kind of cultural identity and so when Ryan and Ashley's neighbor flies that flag I don't think they mean just trying to keep the memory of the south alive or when kids fly that out of their pickup trucks on the high school parking lot or when some of my neighbors fly that And my sense is the beauty of the growth of this valley over the last few years has been just amazing. And I'm sorry so much, so many of us have come in and pushed up the housing values and clogged up 12th Avenue. But I will say many of the people who I talk to who came from the land that I came from, who've moved here, and some are my neighbors, express homogeneity as the reason they came here. And so we, I think we have to be honest about, I, I sit in the athletic committee and hear just heartbreaking stories from coaches trying to recruit players of color to NNU and their families are very unsure of them coming here because they're not sure their student will be safe here, a place we think of as Mayberry. Or even some of their stories about what they experienced living here. And so as beautiful as the angel of Idaho can be, I don't know how to say this other than to say that angel will not help us if this is one of our core values as a community. And that's why we will have to be intentional because let me say this as honestly and as prophetically as I know how to say this, not so with us, Amen. not so with us. Amen. And so we will have to pray and Long for and desire, and to be hospitable, and to be a place that, that does intentional things so that voices that go, get overlooked are heard, and so that we can be, in the best that we can, in this place, be a reflection of what God has called us to be. And maybe, if that is the angel that shapes us, maybe, maybe we too can be a light. To this place where God has put us, Amen. and the kings of the earth will be drawn to that light, and we can be a people that reflect the glory that is to come. God, help us. Um, help me capture a vision in our hearts and imaginations to be a people in all the God-honoring ways to reflect the kind of people you want us to be, the kind of people of hospitality and care and nurturing and development of full leadership and potential of all of those that we encounter. Help us. We've got our own angel to deal with, God, and so help us to figure out as a really educated Nazarene folk, how do we... Be that, but also not create boundaries for others. But help us in this time, in this place where it is so deeply divided and shaped oftentimes by values that are anti-Christ. Make us a reflection of Jesus, we pray. For we pray in his name, amen. Well, no, man. Sorry, the, now, now you turn the clock on, thanks. Um, stand with me. We sing a song that I love, and I don't want us to leave without singing it. For it is a lament, a cry. Are things the way they're supposed to be? No. But there is one who is worthy, who can help us make it and be formed the way he wants us to. So let's sing it together.
2: Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory is he worthy of this and does the father truly love us he does does the spirit Sigh and hold forever those he loves. He does. does our God intend to dwell again? in the scroll the Lion of Jude
1: Our voices. Let every kindred, every tribe, on this terrestrial ball, to Him. Thanks for being here this morning. Those of you online, thanks for joining us. Those of you who are present with us, please, if you're a member, vote today or next week um, as we finish out this church year. But if you've listened well this morning, and it was probably hard, I talked pretty fast. um, There's a vision that captures us that we recognize is so different than the vision we often see around us. And at times that can cause us to doubt and fear and cause us to be shaped in patterns of comfortableness that keep us from living into that. That's why this benediction's for us. And now unto him who by that Pentecostal Ruach spirit, that power that is within us, that's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us. This people, this unique people that he calls his church. And in his son, the one who is lifted up and draws all people to himself. And in his son, Christ Jesus, now and for all generations. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.